This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. Chances are you've heard of the Enneagram, even if you haven't dipped into one of the quizzes to identify your unique personality type. It's a system that has been around for decades, but has become wildly popular over the past several years. If you search Amazon, you'll find a wide variety of books on the topic. Podcasts are devoted to helping listeners navigate life depending on their Enneagram type. And if you're at a gathering, don't be surprised if someone casually asks, what's your Enneagram number? as they reach for the chips and dip. We're going to jump on the Enneagram bandwagon today, specifically discussing how your Enneagram type influences what you write and how you write. To provide insight on the topic, we've invited Elisa Clark, again, who has done some significant research on the topic. Welcome, Elisa. Thanks so much for joining us today to discuss this fun topic. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So great to have you back, Elisa. I know you're working on a book project yourself, which uh, we do the Where Are You Making Progress? And so maybe you can just start it off today and let us know, where are you making progress? Well, it has been a productive few weeks. I feel like I set out my goal for January was to write three chapters, and I've gotten two of those done, and I'm all done the third one so I'm excited I feel like I'm in that honeymoon sweet stage I think I feel like I'm just it's exciting to sit down and write you get a lot of energy don't you when you're when you make that kind of progress yeah I totally I feel like at some point that's going to maybe come to a screeching halt and so I'll have to like deal with that when I get to it but right now I have the energy is around it I'm excited to sit and write you were telling us earlier in the week that you had an insight about how you are most productive with your writing you were talking about how you used to block out like 90 minute segments and like once a day, and now you're doing longer chunks. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, so originally I thought the goal was just to like write a little bit every day, but I'm realizing that I do best when I can sit down like the first day of the week on a Monday and carve out like five or six hours where I can then like just write through the full chapter in rough and then go back and tweak it all week long in smaller chunks. But my brain, I just was finding if I, when I started that first chapter and I did like just a little bit that first day, I then would come back the next morning and be like, where was I? I just lost momentum. So I, I don't know. I wouldn't have known that about myself until I tried it that different way. So I'm excited. I feel like knowing myself is, that's a new development. I love it. And this episode is all about knowing yourself, which I can't get wait to get into. But Dave, what area did you make progress in this week? So mine is another abstract kind of progress. I have four kids and uh, my kids could not be more different. I have a 20-year-old who is a sophomore in college and he is a wanderer mm-hmm. and an explorer. After Thanksgiving, he took a three-week trip to the West Coast with two other buddies, slept in the back of our van. Can you imagine what that van smells like? <laughs> and so he went, to, he went to the West Coast and back, and then he had J-term, January term, at his university, but he was exposed to COVID, and so they said, hey, you have to be in quarantine, and he thought to himself, hmm, 
I can either be in quarantine at the university or I can take another road trip by myself. So he got in the van and went fly fishing in Tennessee. (laughs) And then we thought he was coming back to school. But then we found out he was on the on the East Coast at the Atlantic Ocean. And we're like, what? So he's been from the West Coast, really the coast of Oregon, to the coast of, what is it, South Carolina? Yeah. Within about five weeks, he's put about 9,000 miles on the van. The van already had 178 when he started, so we're going to be close to 190,000 miles on that old van, Honda Odyssey van. But anyway, my growth is that he hates it when I initiate contact with him he'll he'll call me well he never calls me he'll text me when he needs something and that's the only conversation he wants with me and and it's not like a like a hostile relationship because he's kind of like this with his mom too so we've learned not to say anything every so often he'll reach out and want to have like a 30 minute conversation he'll talk 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 and then it shuts off so i'm learning my progress is keep your mouth shut just be there like a boomerang. Like when the boomerang goes out, you you don't get any anxiety about it. You wait till the boomerang comes back, and then you grab it, right? So when he's ready to talk, I'm ready to talk. If he's not ready to talk, don't initiate. Huge progress. That is big. All right, so my progress this week has to, again, do with how I'm accommodating processes in my life. Actually, it doesn't have to do with the process, but it has to do with developing a part of myself that's unnatural. So we have a um, a vacuum that is a shampooer, and it's this bulky plastic, huge thing, and I wanted to shampoo our rug in our living room. And so there are two of these big components that you remove and you put on, and they have all these plastic things that you have to lock in, and I could not get one of them in. And it was just, it was a mechanical thing, and I'm so not mechanical, and my husband was watching me on the sofa, and he was just laughing, and he was trying to give me instructions of how to place this this arm on to get it locked into place. I'm like, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. And I, actually, my husband says, yes, you can. You're choosing not to. And so I finally said, I choose not to do this. I don't want to do this. Would you just do it for me? He's like, no, you need to do this so you can do it for yourself next time. And I was so angry. I was like, and finally I got it on and I'm like, okay, I can do this again. But I still, I struggled again when I did it the next time, but I did get it on. I, but that's not my natural tendency is to try to figure out mechanical things. I say, Jerry, you do it. I don't want to do it. And rather than saying I can't, because I probably could, I just say, I don't want to. You're inclined to do things this way. You do it. That's huge progress. So you did do it. I did do it. And you did it again. And I did it again. Wow. I always find that these small moments of progress are are character developing in general. <laughs> so it's it's good to it's good to focus on them because you know I'm I am making I'm making improvements in my life even if they're small. I'm proud of you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right, so let's dig into this whole Enneagram topic. And Elisa, how about you tell us how you first became interested in the Enneagram? How did that all come about? And what exactly is it? Just a broad overview. Well, I I got interested in it just because it was started to be the buzzword. I heard about it on podcasts, and I came across this book called The Road Back to You by Ian Cron. And I just thought, ah, I'll g- grab this and see what it says. And I, I loved it. I, I'm also one that I'm a big fan of any personality stuff, Myers-Briggs. Like, I just love that. I've eaten that up since the time I was in college. So part of 
really just, I'm a big fan of anything personality driven. And so that's what drew me to the Enneagram. So yeah, can you give us a broad overview of how the Enneagram is different than other personality types? What is it? It's basically nine different ways of seeing the world. And some people describe it as you, each of these nine numbers, you put on these glasses and that's kind of how you view the world, the lens through which you look. Suzanne Stabile, she's my favorite teacher of the Enneagram, and she says that it teaches us that there are nine different ways of experiencing the world and nine different ways of answering some of these basic questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Why do I do the things that I do? It's kind of just this way of viewing yourself and figuring out how you approach the world and how you approach others. If somebody has never done this before, you can go back, you can probably Google the road back to you or Google the Enneagram. I'm sure there's tons of places where you can take a quiz. And so when you take the quiz, you come out as one of these nine numbers from one to nine. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So um, that's definitely one way to do it. I personally feel like the, the tests you take aren't necessarily really accurate. I feel like some of the beauty of the Enneagram is the process of figuring out your number. And if you if you short circuit that process, you're just kind of glomming onto this trendy idea. Whereas if you do the hard work, I feel like the transformation can happen. So going to a book and reading several books or listening to podcasts helps you figure out what that number is that you are. I took the test and I found, discovered (laughs) that I'm an eight, right? So let's start actually by going through each of the numbers and maybe you can give a short description of that. And once you're done with that, let's talk about what you are, because ultimately we want to talk about how the Enneagram shapes our writing voice. That's why we're doing this episode. But we need to kind of get an overview of what the Enneagram is. So why don't you start with maybe just give us a brief overview of each of the numbers and then identify which one you are. Yeah, I'll just give you a quick overview And we'll start from one and we'll go to nine. So ones are typically called the perfectionists. They um, want things to be as they should be. Um, They want to, they're motivated by a desire to live the right way. They want to improve the world. They have a judging and a comparing mind, but they notice errors that others don't see. And they often feel personally responsible to correct those errors. So that's kind of just a general, they're perfectionists. Again, it's really hard to pigeonhole these into these brief little summaries because I don't want people to walk away feeling like, that doesn't make sense to me or whatever. So I just, I guess I would say, if this doesn't resonate, at least do your homework and see where I may be in error. Right. So I shouldn't say my husband may actually be a one and not an eight. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I should make him do the hard work of trying yeah, to figure out what he is. Exactly. Even if he doesn't believe in this thing to begin with. I right. Mean. <laughs> right. What I hear you saying is these are buckets. Total, total buckets. But if you're going to, re- you can take the quick online quiz and get your number, but you really need to read up on it. And sometimes when you take the quiz, you might not actually be that number. I hear you saying that. Yeah. In fact, the first time I took the quiz, I came out as a totally different number that I just 100% am not. I came out as the two, which is the next number and their helpers, they're, they're, that's the sort of the label they're given as the helper, the giver. They're warm, caring, and giving. They need to be needed and loved. Um, and that's what motivates them. So that's what I came out as. And I honestly, I might be caring and warm, but I am not a nurturer. That is not who I am. So um, that's where the test can give you a general overview. But if it doesn't resonate, keep digging. So we have the perfectionist and we have the helper, which is number two. The perfectionist is number one. The helper is number two. 
So what is number three? Yeah, so threes are the performers. They are success-oriented and image-conscious. They're wired for productivity, and they're motivated, motivated by a need to be successful and avoid failure. That's a huge need for them. They're the goal-setters in our, in our world, um, and they get it done. They usually achieve those goals. The next number is the four, and the four is the romantic. Um, they are considered to be some of the most complex numbers of the Enneagram. Um, they're the creative, the sensitive, the moody. Um, I'm looking at my Melissa friend over there, and, and we'll get into that a little later. Yeah, definitely moody, definitely <laughs> sensitive. Don't tell me I'm doing that wrong. How long have we worked together, Melissa? <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, I need to be careful here. You need to be careful. <laughs> I, I'm not saying anything right now. So the fours, the romantic, anything else on the fours? Yeah, so their desire is to be unique and authentic at the same time, which is a gift to the world. They are comfy with melancholy, um, which is a great gift. Um, they are actually, um, this is one of the things I love about Melissa. I'm just going to skip to that because she is a four, but she's the one of, the four is known as the number on the Enneagram that can most sit in someone else's pain, and they're okay with sitting in that with people. They can bear witness to pain without having to fix it. And that is a real strength as a four. And I'm highlighting that only because I know you're a four and we're going to be talking in depth about that. Right, right, right. Okay, let's go on to the five. So fives are the investigator. They're analytical. They're private. They have a limited amount of energy each day. So they're really careful about what they offer to others. I found that really interesting when I was doing work on learning the numbers. Um, and it's really brave of them to show up for relationships because it costs them more than any other number because of their need to to protect the energy that they actually have. They're motivated by a need to gain knowledge and conserve energy and avoid relying on others. Davis, my son, has taken this quiz, and he's high on the five. And it's um, I understand it is he's much more comfortable and inclined to be in his head investigating, gathering information, fixing problems, figuring out problems than to be in relationship with others. So that's his challenge in life, but it's also his greatest gift. Right, right. I think that's the beauty of the Enneagram. Our greatest strength can be our greatest weakness. And that's the, and we all move within our number from a healthy to a normal to an unhealthy range. And that's the beauty of the Enneagram. It's fluid. You kind of go in and out depending on what circumstance you're in. All right. Six. Tell us about six. All right. So the sixes are the loyalists. Honestly, they're the glue that hold together all of the organizations that we love. They are loyal. They're committed. They're practical. They're witty. They're actually more committed about the common good than any other number. They are motivated by fear and the need for security. And they have a lot of anxiety about possible future events. So they're our worst case scenario people um, following the rules um, because they want to manage their anxiety. So the sevens are the enthusiasts, and that's actually what I identify as. Um, so they uh, are fun, spontaneous, adventurous. They're one of their main frustrating points is they avoid pain at all costs. So that I can attest to, I will run from pain if I can. They quickly reframe anything negative into a positive because they kind of, we kind of live on the happy side of emotions. So we have all the emotions, but we're going to, we're going to run to the positive and we'll reframe anything so that we're sitting in the positive. And I sit in the melancholy. We're a good pair. And we are a good <laughs> pair. So when you're in that, just, we won't go deep into this right now, but when you're in the, the happy side and you're not really feeling happy, do you know that in your head? And are you consciously, okay, I've got to project being happy, or are you just default to happy? 
I, I just default to happy, honestly. I don't sit here and try to like cover that up, but I will say because I typically really am in that happy zone, if I show sad or discouragement or frustrated, um, people aren't comfortable with that because they know me as happy. So that's why back to the whole Melissa connection, I that's one of the things I love most about Melissa is I can sit in the sad, which most people don't real they're uncomfortable with that in me because I'm typically happy, happy, joy, joy, let's go on to the next fun thing. You're Tigger. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good, bad, or otherwise. <laughs> All right, the eight. Say eight. Oh, we got an eight in the room, Dave. (laughs) So eights are our challengers, and uh, they are passionate. They have more energy than any other number on the Enneagram, and they engage the most with people. They are independent thinkers, super independent. They do not want to be controlled. That would be a key point of them. One of their struggle points is anger. But it doesn't last long. Like they get it out and then they move on. Whereas maybe the rest of us might have that anger, but we then stew in it and sit in it and don't know what to do with it. But they're like, deal with it and move on. So that's one of the one of the things about them. They can be commanding. They're pretty intense at times. They can be confrontational. And again, they're seeing it as a, this is the way it ought to be. So let's confront this and get it done and move on. And they are motivated by a need to be strong, and they do not like feeling weak or vulnerable. Does any of this resonate with you, Dave? It may or may not. (laughs) (laughs) I do root for the underdog, and that's one of the pieces of this. Uh, So that's really true. And the anger is interesting. I think as I look at my kids and how I raise them, we have a 12-year-old who is our youngest by... Our oldest is 25, our youngest is 12. I'm a much better parent now as I've aged, because I I noticed that when I had stress in my life, I'd come home, and I don't know if it's anger, but it probably was how they experienced it. I was just harsh. Mm -hmm. And and as I look back on my parenting, I think, I could have been less harsh, because there was no need to. And I realize now there's no need to be anxious about these things, but it does come out for me as being more harsh. And, And so as you get older, as I've gotten older, I've had to figure that out. I'll just add this right now. I heard once that whatever strength you have, you have to have both a gas pedal and a brake. Because if you're only stepping on the gas, you're going to run over people. So sometimes you have to put a brake to it. And that's certainly true for my number. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's true for all of us. Our greatest strength is our greatest weakness too. And it's that balance and living in the healthy of that instead of the unhealthy. All right, our final number. Yeah, so the nines are called the peacemaker. They have this gift of seeing two sides to everything. So because of that, they're prone to procrastination and indecision. They are loyal. They like to be close. They are self-forgetting. They set aside their own needs and agenda to merge with others often. Uh, They have the least energy of all types because they try to keep anything in that would cause conflict and keep out anything that would steal their peace. So they're huge on avoiding conflict at all costs. And they sometimes are labeled as passive-aggressive. They manage their anger by being passive-aggressive. They're pleasant. They're laid back. They're accommodating. Their their motivation is a need to keep the peace. All right. So you've outlined all these numbers. Thanks so much for doing that, giving us this kind of broad overview. Obviously, if you want to take a deeper dive into this, we'll post some resources um, on our show notes page. So As Elisa alluded to, I am a four, which is considered the romantic, and I thought I would 
first share how I think that influences my writing and my writing style, my writing voice. I think there are a couple points I want to make. One of the things that uh, Four is remarkable for is their desire to be authentic. And I do a lot of writing on Instagram. And one thing that connects me, I think, to my audience is my ability to be vulnerable and share my true self. And that's, that's how people connect with me in my writing. And I, that's, that's a value I hold um, very deeply. So that does mm. come across in my writing and how I express myself. Mm. And, you know, I'm comfortable with my sadness and I'm able to share that. And so this is more personal. Some byline work for magazines and that voice doesn't come out because I'm writing in the voice of um, the magazine. So, but if I'm writing personally, that's definitely what comes out. Also, I think with my background in literature, I really love language and creative expressions mm. of language through metaphor and symbolism and rhythm. And so I pay a lot of attention to that in my own writing, but also I, I pay attention to that in other people's writing. And so I think that that kind of plays into my creative, sensitive, and moody um, personality. I don't know. What could you add to that, Alisa? I agree. I think your gift of authenticity, like I follow you on Instagram and I see the connection that people make with your posts because you are honest and you're authentic and you are able to enter into whatever you're facing. And then that gives people permission to do the same, which I think is such a gift. I think the other thing, if I was to think about topics that I'd be compassionate about sharing, I wrote a couple of pieces for CZ's blog, and they one was, I don't want to be Joanna Gaines, and the other one... It was about your, um, the post about moving to Warehouse 55. 55 right. And so yeah. those all had a strong sense of, I need to be me, mm -hmm. I can't be like everyone else, because I want to provide a unique experience. So there are certain things that I you know, put my foot down on and I want to take a stand on it, it usually has to be, usually is related to that, that quest for authenticity, for being unique, for taking a stand on something that reflects who you are. Having edited you for 20 plus years, I would say that literary piece is very close to the surface of your writing, your, your passion for words you will have extended longer sentences, much more than I would have. But I've learned through the years in my editing of you to be careful not to run that over. Now, if we're writing copy for a client, that's different. But for your, like for those blogs that you wrote for our CZ blog, they were very, very you. So I think when we talk about the Enneagram, you talk about four, it has to do with maybe the content that you choose to write. That's one impact. I also think it might have to do with your the length of your sentences, which also contributes, kind of the cadence, mm -hmm. which also contributes to voice. So not just the content, but how you lay down a sentence. And there's many ways to do that. Right. I also think that one of the challenges for me in writing is thinking of the most unique way to express something. How mm -hmm. can I express this in a way that has never been said before. And I think, you know, I always think, is there a metaphor that I can use or is there a great word? And so that stalls me a lot in the writing process too, because that quest to be unique is so important. Sometimes you just got to get it out. You know, we say this all the time, just get out your SFD, just get out the words and go back and craft down the road. But it can be stifling for me also when I think long and hard about the freshest, most creative way to say something. Oh, that that's great, Melissa. I totally see that in you and sort of that painful, like, I've, 
I've got to get the freshest, most unique uh, word. Whereas that's not something I would necessarily struggle with. So I love the beauty of the Enneagram. Like it shows our different ways we connect and live out our life in the world. Dave or Elisa, who wants to go next? Let's have Elisa. I want to hear about Elisa. And I do think sometimes when you look at other writers, you, you can get discouraged. Like I'll never write like that. And that's actually a good thing because you won't write like that because you are not that person. And if there's one takeaway uh, that I want all our listeners to have out of this, this episode is to lean into your own uniqueness and not keep looking at other people. And, and so that to me is a, is a takeaway definitely for this, for this episode. So Lisa, we know your number, yeah. but let's talk about your writing and how that joy and that positivity and how does that come through in your writing? It's been fun to think about this because I've done a lot of studying on the Enneagram, but I've not really connected it to writing. So it's been fun the last couple of weeks to think this through. But I guess the bottom line is in my writing, I want it to inspire. Like I want to motivate change and in encourage people and inspire people. And I see that in my writing, like that's what I'm drawn to. That's what I want my book to be. I don't want people to read my book and, and be stuck in what they're not doing. I want them to catch the vision of what they could do, you know? And, and, so, and it's like a, a five may be more intellectually steeped and yours is maybe more inspirational. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And I think that was a struggle I had early on. Like, boy, what do I have to say? I just, I just want people to be excited. And so I need to figure out how do I bring meaning along with my inspiration? So I feel like that's been a, a, a good challenge to to figure out, to sit in some, maybe some of the fiveness of like, where is the research? What's the knowledge? What's the proof of what I'm trying to say? So what I hear you saying is you're a seven, but in being more reflective, you might say in my writing, I need to make sure that I'm actually adding more research because I might gloss over that in favor of inspiration. hundred percent. Yeah. That's huge. That's a huge insight. I, I think that's true. And I think Part of maturity is saying, here's my strength, but also back to the, the gas pedal versus the brake. Depending on your number, you might need to be more inspirational. I tend not to be that way, but I can see that's a huge value in writing because that's it's encouraging and hopeful. And it's just it's great to see how your strength needs to be buttressed with other pieces. That's exactly right. That's so good. Yeah. I, as a seven, I'm future driven. So I'm oriented to the future and that's a whole nother episode for a whole nother day. But while I still need to read chapter three of my book, I'm also thinking about my launch party and that's going to be a really fun day someday. You know what I mean? So I am so far out in the future and I'm thinking about what's going to go in the goodie box that I send to my launch team and where I still need to write the actual book. Oh, I love that. Nice. I love that about you, Alyssa. You are like the biggest dreamer I know, and I love that. And more people need that when they're writing a book because I think that that would help them continue to go forward. And you're just thinking creatively about how you're going to get the book into the world, which is huge. It fits your brand, Water Street Dreams. Right, right. Elisa's a great photographer, and she has this, her whole business is photography. And so when you go to her website and you just see the images that she creates through photography, it's amazing. I can see how it fits your seven brand. In oh. a sense, you, your Water Street's dreams is a seven. Yeah, I think Absolutely. so. Be before I knew what seven was that I know, right? It's just, it's funny how when you start actually thinking about all this, you see it kind of oozing everywhere, which is 
the, I find it fun. I'm sure it's not fun for everybody, but well, I it's do. like you said, you have the lenses on. Yeah. Once you have the lenses on, you're like, oh, now I see why I respond this way, or oh, I see why my husband doesn't understand this about me because he's this. <laughs> right, right. I think I already touched a little bit about the right. The research is definitely going to be the hardest part of my writing. It just doesn't come as easy. I don't love searching for knowledge and research. But that's what I've been encouraged about recently to just get in there and and do the work. So I would say also being future oriented, I can get sidetracked pretty easily. Discipline is not my greatest strength. So if I don't have a schedule and have my writing on a calendar, I it's going to be sidetracked because I'm going to get doing the dishes and I'm going to be editing photos. And before I know it, a week will go by and I haven't written. So I feel like that's a huge thing, knowing who I am. I love that. I love how you put into place um, certain strategies to help you mitigate your number and to to make it stronger or to keep it from going off track. Right. I think that's one of the beauties of the Enneagram is knowing knowing what your weaknesses are so then you can be on a path to wholeness and health and Productivity. Productivity. Yes, absolutely. Okay, Dave, eight. And how does that influence how you write and what you write? (laughs) Is there any doubt? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the eight obviously is a challenger and all you have to do is read (laughs) Death by Suburb. And (laughs) I I know that I made a lot of people angry in Wheaton when I wrote the book because my wife and I took the kids on vacation right after the book came out. And when we came back, one of our vehicles had been egged. And uh, so, so it was a provocative book. It was a, a little bit of a screed against this religious suburban culture that I live in. And, and the question was, how do, you, how do you live in this in this world spiritually in a healthy way when you're living among all this? Yeah. And, and so it was, it was meant to be provocative. <laughs> and one way I do provocative is sarcastic. Just the other day, I posted on Facebook. I don't post a ton on Facebook, and every time I do, it's usually about my kids. So I, I posted that uh, two years ago. My son won conference in wrestling at 182. You know, the, it was a big deal for him, and his picture will hang in the halls of Wheaton North. And uh, so I, that came up as a memory, and I posted it. I thought, okay, how can I post this? Because this is pretty shallow. So I just said something that you might remember. You know, this is an example of a father who still lives in the past. <laughs> but that's how I write. So I write sarcastic, but I don't always do that. I was thinking the other day, if I had $10 for every thousand words over the last 30 years that I've ghostwritten. So if I had $10 for every thousand words of ghostwritten copy, I'd be a multi, multi-millionaire because I've done so much of it. So you can't write like that when you are doing someone else, when you're creating someone else's voice. You can't write like that when you're copywriting. So in professional writing, you have to really monitor that. Mm. But I find that when I write and where I get a lot of energy is when I'm attacking something in a sarcastic way. Interesting. And and that's where I get energy. And that's where I want to write on my own, on my own stuff. So um, I, I did a post for our Two Guys in a River blog. We have a podcast and a blog. And I did one on the four retirement myths, and one is that I'm going to fly fish more when I when I retire. And the whole thesis of the of the little blog was that I retired when I was 38 when I started my company. And but anyway, it was a very sarcastic piece, but it ended up being one of the top pieces. And when some of the other pieces I've wrote that didn't have that edge to it, they're just not all that interesting. <laughs> so I do have to dial it back. So definitely on the eight, I I, I can own it. 
So, <laughs> but I enjoy good. doing that, and that's where I get energy from my writing. I think you said something so important, Dave. I think Elisa alluded to it. She's most comfortable when she's inspiring. I'm most comfortable when I'm being authentic, and you're most comfortable when you're being a challenger or sarcastic or, you know, I'm challenging a system or a way of thinking. And I think if I were to try to be more like you and Elisa was trying to be more like me and you're trying to be more like Elisa, our our voice would be lost and it wouldn't attract readers because we were trying to be something that we're not. I agree with that 100%. We have to be who we are, right? And that if that can come out in our writing, what a gift to the world. We don't need to be someone else. I was thinking about someone we're going to have on the podcast who is a CPA who is just going to release a book. We'll have him on the ep- on the podcast here soon. And thinking his book is on leadership and he has uh, an audience, which is CPAs and executives in that space. He's going to have a very unique voice for that. His voice should not be sarcastic. His voice, should, I haven't read anything, so I don't know, but yeah. I'm assuming it's very, very professional. It's really done well, but it's done in his voice. And so I do think the takeaway from this episode, it's helpful to know what it is so that you can, again, monitor it. Maybe you need to add research. Maybe you need to be more inspirational. Um, And you can't be sarcastic all the time. I can't be sarcastic. That's exhausting, actually. So you have to be really careful. So uh, this is, to me, this is really helpful to me because it actually makes me think more about how, okay, what are my weaknesses and how can I bolster and strengthen that? So what are your weaknesses as it relates to your number in writing? I'm such a researcher on, in other areas of my life, so I, I'm digging all the time, but I, and I read a lot. But when I get on a, on a sarcastic role, I sometimes need to, I need to slow down actually for more research. I would say that mm-hmm. I'm a little bit like you, Elisa. I need to slow down for the research. Interesting. I also just think sometimes I overdo it on that. And so I just need to be careful. So that would be my weakness, I think. What about you? <laughs> yeah, let me think about this. <laughs> let me think about this. You put me on the spot. I put you on the spot. I guess I deserve it. Um, You're perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Maybe I am a perfectionist, not um, a romantic. No, I, I think bores are known for being self-indulgent. So I think that that could be a weakness. Like if I'm only focused on me and my experience and there could be a bit of self-indulgence there. So I think there needs to be an awareness that it's not just my experience, but it's, it's others' experiences and try to make it relatable to others. So would you say like in an Instagram post, someone might go, oh, I would never have revealed that. Would that be it? Would too vulnerable, would you say? I think too vulnerable or sometimes it comes across as woe is me, you know, like I'm trying to get some sort of affirmation or or something like that. And it, it, and it, and I think that becomes a roadblock for people actually connecting with me. So there's a sense that I have to be aware of how people might actually be taking in what I'm saying and um, just be reflective of even my own motivation for saying it. I know like I'm motivated because I I do want to be authentic and I, but I also want to be unique. And sometimes that unique, that desire to be unique, um, it creates kind of a a chasm between me and others also. So I I just need to be aware of that. Yeah, that's really good. Elisa, we've already talked about your weaknesses in terms of research. Is there anything else that you want to add to that? I think the only other thing I would say is 
the seven is known for avoiding pain at all costs. And I feel like right now I am in the honeymoon phase. I'm super motivated, but at some point I think I will hit a wall and I need to push through that and not run from that. And I, I just know myself well enough to know that that, I think I'll be sitting in some tension there for a little bit. Well, I am so grateful for the time that you've given to us today, being with us today and also just putting some thoughts together prior to this so that you are prepared. Thank you so much for being with us. Elisa, this has been terrific. I would love to have you back at some point. We have not even scratched the surface of this. So my wife would mock me if she knew I was doing an episode on, on the Enneagram. She's a nine and she's been deep into this for a long time and she's been trying to get me to do it. And so I do this quick test. Oh yeah, I'm H. She goes, yeah, you are. And, and then I told her today as I was leaving, uh, yeah, I'm going to do an episode on the Enneagram with Melissa and Elisa. She kind of rolled her eyes like, yeah, you're a real expert. And you know what my husband said? He said, what a waste of time. <laughs> as as would mine think the same thing. That's awesome. You can't put me in a box. I'm not a number. <laughs> All right. So let's close out this episode with my favorite part, which is sharing our words for the episode. So Elisa, do you want to go first? I found this word this week. It's called cottywomple. That which, is fun to say. Isn't that fun to say? Did you say that again? Cottywomple. Is that a word? Well, it's an English slang, so I don't know if it technically counts, but I'm counting it. I, I think it's super fun. And it, you want to know what it means? Yes. Okay. So it means to travel in a purposeful manner toward a vague destination, which seems like it might have been your son. He was he was on a mission. He was cottlewompling his way to the West Coast right. and East. And East Coast. And, and East South Coast. to Tennessee to fish. I love your son, by the way. Could he be a seven? I bet he is. Uh, that's something I would 100% do. Yeah, you did that I've in college. I've done that so many times. Just put jump on a plane out to the West Coast, travel up and down. You're I a cottywompler. I'm a cottywompler. What a great... <laughs> Word. I have actually never heard of that word before. Can you I've, spell it? C-O-D-D-I-W-O-M-P-L-E. A cottywompler. I love it. <laughs> A cottywompler. <laughs> Do you want to go next, Dave? No, you go next. Okay, so last week I shared the word sartorial, which has to do with fashion, tailoring, dress, and I looked up the etymology, and it does come from the word sartor, which is, has to do with tailoring. Anyway, I read another article this week, and it was called, and was on the topic of sadware, and they use that definition, that word again. And sadware, it's so fitting because it's what I look like every day when I work from home. <laughs> What's it called? What's the word? Sadware. 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 <laughs> sadware. <laughs> sadware. S a d w e a r, and it's this. I, I wish I would have written down the actual definition because it's so great. But it's this dress that you put on because it's comfy in these really difficult, hard times of COVID and being quarantined. But it also is kind of this whimsical thing that you do like, yeah, I'm going to wear this hunting cap with my my pajama bottoms and this multicolored velvet robe. I love it. Yeah. 
So, but, and you're so comfortable and you have on your favorite things, but then you look in the mirror and you are a hot mess. It is sad what you look like. And I have a whole series on Instagram where I called it COVID Fashion Diaries because that's what it is. I'm like, I have on this random fur coat and my Broncos pajama bottoms and a purple sweater that doesn't go with it and my, you know, soccer sliders and woolly socks. I mean, that is sad wear at its essence. Sad wear. No sartorial consideration. That's great, Melissa. I guess my question is, and we're all together today, we are not on Zoom, we're actually in the same room. So so my question to you, Melissa, is, so is what you're wearing sad wear? (laughs) My husband would say so. I put on some overalls and a green sweater, and my shoes are green also, they match my sweater. I I think I look pretty- Just joking. I think I look pretty put together. If this was sad wear, I would- we're all in trouble if yeah. that's sad wear. Yes, yes. That, that was a bad. That, you are not wearing sad wear. But yeah, for Zoom calls, it's like I have to be, you know, like business on top, but it's completely sad on the bottom. <laughs> that's awesome. So that's actually the guy, um, somebody, re- after he wrote this article, I think it was in, maybe it was in Esquire. I don't remember which magazine, but somebody reached out to him about, you know, where did this term first become popular? It's like, well, I, you know, I coined the phrase. He goes, but you know, it looks like you could be Justin Bieber's side <laughs> sidekick, you know? It's just like the, the beanies and the sloppy pants. So anyway. Well, back to the Enneagram, you're being authentic. That's right. right. You are I, a four. I am a four. I, I feel my happiest in sad wear when I put on, you know. Being unique you. Yes. I, I mean, it kind of harkens back to how I dressed as a four-year-old, actually. Right. Just the mismatchedness mm-hmm. of it all. Anyway, okay, Dave, you're... I'm glad I'm going last for the words of the episode because mine is really boring <laughs> compared to cottywomple and sadware. So I decided to use the word guzzle today. And the reason why is we did an ep- we did actually a, a skills training the other day on how to edit your prose and the problems with adding adverbs like to your verbs. So the actual definition of guzzle is to drink or eat greedily, right? Mm -hmm. Greedily. So greedily is an adverb. So it'd be better to use, instead of saying he drank greedily out of his can of beer, you know, whatever (laughs) it is, it'd be better. He guzzled it, right? It's great. He guzzled his Corona. He guzzled his (laughs) Corona. Yes. Don't you have an image now in your mind? I do. Or he guzzled his St. Pauli's girl. Well, no. That's that's another beer we probably shouldn't mention. He guzzled his old jewels. Now you know something about the character. Yeah. Ah. He doesn't drink alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about showing and not telling. Maybe he was an alcoholic in the past, and now he only drinks non-alcoholic beverages. That's true. Oh. Ooh, because it's off. So that nice. we're adding words. There's some subtlety here. The point here is, and I, I would probably never even use the word guzzle because I'd want a word that's another word outside of guzzle because guzzle is a common word. But I like the word because it's a good lesson in how to edit yourself. And, and it's a strong word and it has, it's, it, it has a, like almost a guttural to guzzle. Right. What, what don't you like about the word guzzle? It may be a simple term, but it has the zzz in the middle of it, which is <laughs> so fun to read and mm-hmm. hear in your mind. So even if it's a simple word, I would still use it because it is just a good sounding word. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yep. I'm just trying to be like... You're trying to be a four. You're trying to be a right. <laughs> oh my, we're headed south. On this, on this. We better wrap it up. Yeah, wrap it up. 
All right, that's a wrap. I am Melissa Parks, and I am a four. I'm Dave Getz, and I am an eight. And I'm Elisa Clark, and I'm a seven. Now buckle up and write. <laughs>